0: Age of Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history
1: made in Texas by a Texan for everyone, everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons, I'm Michael, and in this episode we continue with Part 2 of the Texas Cattle Drives of 1866 to 1890. Now, before we proceed, I have one recommendation and one clarification. The recommendation is for every episode of Texas History Lessons, find a good map for your tablet or your phone or your laptop or just a good old-fashioned paper map that shows more than just the state of Texas. Because to understand the history of Texas... Requires understanding the history of areas around Texas. Areas that have influenced Texas. And the geography of the surrounding area as well. As you'll see as we get into this episode. The history of Texas does not begin and end at the borders of our modern day state. So, familiarizing yourself with the areas surrounding Texas in the United States, and in that often blank spot on a lot of maps to the south of the Rio Grande. Now, the clarification I want to make is that I am in no way trying to say that cattle drives began and ended in the, between the years of 1866 and 1890. Cattle drives definitely were not a new thing in 1866, And they did not end in 1890. I think I tried to make that pretty clear. For the purpose of this series of episodes. In the first episode. But I just want to clarify. This series. Focuses on a specific series of cattle drives from Texas. And the way people adapted to the need to move vast quantities of cattle. To meet a growing demand in a specific time period and under specific circumstances. Columbus, of course, had brought cattle with him on his second voyage in 1493 to the Western Hemisphere, bringing them to Hispaniola, or modern-day Haiti. Many more cattle were brought in later voyages, and consider that for just a second. Step back and think about that. The transportation across the sea in that time was challenging enough. Bringing cattle In quantity. Instead of being the long drive, it would be the long haul or the long float. Bringing cattle like that must have been a specific challenge. Imagine trying to care for and keep the animals fed on an overseas voyage. It must have been an amazing time and amazing people to enable to deal with that circumstance. Some of the earliest known cattle to land in actual North America, were brought by a man in 1521 named Gregorio de Villalobos. He brought them from Santo Domingo on Hispaniola to the area of modern-day Tampico, near the Panuco River in northeastern Mexico in 1521, as I said. The Panuco area became an important cattle center, along with other cattle centers that initially developed to the south and moved north over time to supply the needs of mines and other endeavors. By 1620, the Punuco area had some of the largest concentrations of cattle in all of Nuevo España, New Spain. Hernán Cortés also brought cattle to Mexico in 1521, and by the 1540s, the Spaniards had established the ranching industry in America and began driving cattle northwards. Some researchers believe that feral cattle had escaped and wandered north through Tamaulipas and reached modern-day Texas before significant efforts had been made to settle the area. Now, to be certain, cattle were driven far to the north on the expeditions of the Conquistadors to supply the expedition's needs, and when the Franciscan missionaries established the missions in Tejas, they likewise established ranches of cattle to provide for theirs and the people they were trying to convert. In 1721, José de also known as the Marquis de Aguayo, drove cattle from his massive ranch in Coahuila to supply the missions. And naturally, Independent ranches followed, moving northward and developing in Texas. Already by 1680, there had been several thousand cattle in the El Paso area, and we'll see the reasons for that pretty soon, and ranches also were developing along the Rio Grande River. The small settlements that eventually developed in Texas during the New Spain era developed a much-needed economy of horses and cattle trading, driving them south in Coahuila and east into Louisiana, even though trade with Louisiana was illegal. During the English colonies on the East Coast War of Independence from Great Britain, cattle were driven east to aid Spanish soldiers in their fight against the English. Between 1779 and 1782, cattle from ranches belonged to the citizens and missions of Bear and La Bahia were trailed by Texas ranchers, and Vaqueros to Nacadoches, Natchitoches, and Opelousas for distribution to Bernardo Galvez's, Galveston, who's named after him, his forces that were waging a campaign against the British along the Mississippi River and the Gulf Coast. Cattle continued to be driven to northern Mexico and Louisiana, and after the Anglo-American colonists settled in the 1820s, They began blending eastern ranching techniques with Hispanic techniques. In 1836, Texas ranchers were said to have driven cattle to New Orleans along a beef trail, is what they called it. In the 1840s, there were cattle being driven to Sedalia, Baxter Springs, Springfield, and St. Louis, Missouri, and other places. But by the 1850s, Missouri farmers were starting to protest against the cattle drives and attempting to block them. There were also attempts to drive them west to California. We'll get into that a little bit pretty soon. But all of this brings us to our investigation of what United States historians call the Long Drive. That period of time from 1866 to 1890 when a massive amount of cattle were moved from cattle-rich Texas to other areas in the United States. And we're going to be looking at the development of a special class of businessmen that capitalized and made it possible. Now, at this time, the Texas cattle had very little value in Texas since they were almost isolated from larger markets. Sporadic and generally unsuccessful drives had been made to the east and west before the Civil War. The Louisiana terrain posed a problem, hardly suitable for cattle driving. It was almost impassable. People did do it. It was very difficult. Driving through Arkansas or the Indian Nation was also risky. These lands threatened with unknown country, potential thieves and outlaws, and potential theft by Native Americans. German Jones, writing on the situation, said, Many ranchers, despairing of a market for beef, slaughtered some animals for their hides and tallow and let the rest multiply. In 1842, some herds were driven to New Orleans, but the prices were low and no herds followed. A herd of 1,000 was driven to Ohio in 1846 and sold to farmers as feeding stock. A gentleman named P.R. Mitchell, accompanied by three others, according to what I saw here, only three others accompanied him to drive 1,200 steers in 1856 towards Chicago. Some men earned very high profits by driving cattle to the California gold fields before the Civil War. In 1854, Steers purchased in Texas for five to fifteen dollars could be sold in California for prices ranging from sixty to a hundred and fifty dollars. It was such a risky fifteen hundred mile journey that very few attempted it. Others attempted to drive cattle to the Gulf and ship them to New Orleans and Mobile. This was short lived also, for the steamship freight prices were prohibitive, eating up the profits. The Morgan Line, a steamship company, did purchase cattle for itself, as many as could be carried, and then sold them in New Orleans and Mobile. For individuals wanting to do this, the freight charges were often way too high. Nevertheless, a few shiploads of longhorns actually did reach Cuban ports to supply the plantations there. On March 2nd, 1861, Texas seceded from the United States, and on March 5th, 1861 joined the Confederate States of America. Some Texans did join the Union Army, though very few in number. However, more than 50,000 did fight for the Confederacy. While many Texans left to serve the Confederacy in battle, their herds were often neglected. With herds left uncared for, calves were born and went unbranded, many cattle spread freely across the prairie. The Texas price of longhorns plummeted. Some efforts were made at supplying the Confederate troops with beef through New Orleans. John S. Chisholm, living near Bolivar in Denton County, Texas, north of Dallas and Fort Worth, was one of the cattlemen supplying the Confederacy with cattle. After New Orleans fell to the Union in 1862, Texas could no longer supply the Confederates with beef. Some entrepreneurs continued trailing cattle to New Orleans, however, where Longhorns were sold for 40 to $60 a head in 1864. When the war ended in 1865, Texas found itself bankrupt and demoralized. Confederate money was worthless, of course. Good money was very scarce, and federal troops occupied the states. During the Civil War, lasting from 1861 to 1865, hundreds of thousands of calves had matured, roaming without brands, wild and dangerous. They were scattered through the range, there for anyone to claim. Anyone who wanted or was able could gather herds for themselves from the public lands where thousands roamed unbranded, and many Texans did just that. But one problem existed. The cattle were practically worthless. A man could gather thousands of cattle and it would be for naught unless he had a market to sell them in. Records from 1870s show that Texas contained 13% of the country's cattle and only 2% of the population. An enormous supply existed, but with no immediate market. A business developed involving the slaughter and skinning of cattle, though. The hide and tallow could be utilized. As J. Frank Dobie wrote, cattle were hardly worth stealing, and a cow's hide was actually worth more than a live cow. At Plants, north of Brazoria, black laborers skinned the beast, removed the tallow, and sent the meat down shoes to feed the catfish of the Brazos River. The men gathering these cattle led a harsh life. Each man with a few horses and food, usually cornbread and dried beef, would ride through the brush searching for the creatures. They carried a good rope as well as several shorter pieces for hog-tying the cattle. Markets did exist, but distance was a severe problem. To the northwest were miners, soldiers, reservation Indians, needing beef for consumption and northern range ranchers desiring breeding and feeder stock. To the northeast were the railheads, leading to the east and the midwest, where cattle were in great demand. The northern cattle population had declined during the Civil War. Two factors contributed to this, the destructiveness of war and the increased consumption of meat by the armies. Eastern and Northern demand also grew steadily as a result of the increasing population, the westward movement, and industrialization. While a cow could be purchased for three to five dollars in Texas at the war's end, the price in New York ranged from thirty to fifty dollars a head. A good steer might even sell for eighty to ninety in Eastern markets. In June of 1866, a small herd of Texas longhorns were sold for $88 each in Kentucky. In October 1866, 130 Texas steers were sold elsewhere at an average price of $65 a head. These high prices serve as a good gauge of how great the demand was. The demand was in the north and the east, and the supply was in Texas, with the possibility of enormous profits. Some way of connecting the two would be attempted, and that's what we're going to look at next. Now's a great time to take a break and thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons. Now we're going to move on to a part about how they made it efficient to do these long drives. And it involves supply and control of labor and merchandise. Most ranchers, if they were successful, did not have time to leave their ranch to drive cattle northwards to market. The ownership and management of a ranch required the rancher's full time and attention. Nor could a rancher usually afford to send his hands on drives with cattle. It was hard enough to keep the ranch going without adding the additional toil of a grueling two- to three-month cattle drive. As the economic historian Jimmy Skaggs pointed out in his book, the successful ranching operation actively engaged in animal husbandry. To be successful, they had to pay attention to their cattle. Therefore, a need, a demand, existed for a reliable way to get cattle to market without leaving the ranch to itself. This situation stimulated the emergence of the cattle trailing contractors and drovers. At least 11 drovers, including the trail boss, were needed to drive a herd of 2,500 to 3,000 cattle to market, Just imagine, we've all watched the movies, we've all seen it on TV shows, if you have any familiarity with cattle, just imagine that many cattle with only that many people. It's a daunting task. Now these people needed enough food to last them about three months, they needed many horses along with other supplies. A trailing contractor would make all the arrangements and furnish all of the supplies as well as find a northern buyer for the cattle. For this service, he would charge a $1 dollar to dollar fifty per head, two dollars at the most. In order to make a profit for himself, the contractor had to be efficient in organization and management. Ike T Pryor, a very efficient and therefore successful transportation agent, contracted the delivery of thousands of cattle. He recorded the cost of driving a herd in 1884. The salary of 11 drovers, including the boss, were $30 each for the 10 men, including the cook, and $100 a month for the boss. This gave an outlay of $400 a month, and estimating $100 for provisions, there was an expense of $500 a month to move a herd of 3,000 cattle, 450 to 500 miles. Therefore, the expense for a drive of 3,000 cattle from South Texas to Kansas taking two months would be about a thousand bucks. The contractor could clear a profit of $2,000. It was a very lucrative enterprise, or it could be. Pryor made a total profit of over $20,000 in 1884 by contracting the delivery of more than 45,000 cattle to northern ranchers. The cattle trailing industry was extremely speculative, though. It depended on the prevailing market price and on the drover's efficiency and speed in crossing great distances. However, if successful, huge profits could be made. Contractors followed many different methods in the cattle trailing business. Some focused on trailing cattle as their only source of income. Others speculated in the cattle business along with trailing. They would purchase herds for themselves, speculating on prices along with driving other people's herds. A few cattlemen trailed their own herds to Kansas. It did happen. I'm not trying to say ranchers did not ever do this. Of course they did. The chance of making a big profit was too desirable. George Webb Slaughter found this activity very lucrative. Earning almost $500,000 $500,000 in the 1860s and 70s Between 1868 and 1875 Most ranchers would employ the services of a contractor Or sell the cattle to buyers Who then trailed them northward Joseph C. Bryant A successful cattleman in Montague County, Texas Right up there on the Red River Where the Chisholm Trail crossing was Began ranching at an early age And had later helped organize the Barefoot and Bryant Cattle Company His company speculated by purchasing large herds of cattle and then driving them to Wichita, Kansas. John T. Little of South Texas, founder of the Little McDaniel Schreiner and Light Cattle Company, was primarily a contractor. He did occasionally increase his profits by purchasing herds and driving them north. This type of speculation was common. As I've said, Little, the greatest of the trailing contractors, some have said, had a hand in the movement of over 600,000 cattle between 1871 and 1887. Perhaps one-tenth of the cattle trailed north. He had a hand in making this happen. Jimmy Skaggs estimates that the Little McDaniel Schreiner and Lot Cattle Company controlled at least 15% of the cattle driven northwards in between 1866 and 1890. The amount might even be closer to 30% if the 10 years the firm did not exist are taken into account. The role of the trailing contractor must not be discounted. They were of major significance to the cattle trailing industry. For example, in 1875, four contractors moved at least two-thirds of the cattle driven northwards. The most dominant and most successful trailing contractors of the industry were the following gentlemen, Eugene B. Millett and Associates the Blocker brothers, the Pryor brothers, Monroe Choate and Associates, J.F. Ellison and John O. DeWeese, J.J. Myers, George Saunders, and of course, Little McDaniel, Schreiner and Lott. Jimmy Skagg said the following of the trailing contractor. He was a middleman whose earnings came from performing a service or from speculating on future prices by buying cattle that he drove to market. Whichever method best suited him, or a combination of the two, he was frequently more businessman than cattleman, and more often speculator than manager. For his other simultaneous investments frequently ranged the full breadth and scope of business consolidation, horizontal, vertical, and conglomerate. The horizontal structure of the business occurred when two or more contractors joined forces. mergers made larger capital resources available and enabled the division of responsibility for the enterprise's activities. The best example of horizontal feature of the business is the Little McDaniels, Shriner and Lott Cattle Company. All these different individuals came together to have vast control over this new industry. The vertical aspect of the cattle trailing industry was the most common structure used by trailing contractors. It resulted when the actual control of raising cattle combined with trailing them to market with other ranchers' herds. I think this is a good point for us to end this episode. I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope you're enjoying it. I've enjoying reviewing some work I did a long time ago. And I think that uh, as we go on in the next episode, we're going to look at what they had to do to get ready for the drive and what kind of people were involved. So thanks for listening. If you have any photography project needs from real estate photography to aerial videos of property or different events, be sure to consider contacting Panther City Air based in Fort Worth, they are capable of doing all kinds of projects aerial photography or videography, uh, so filming uh, construction progress documentation, roof or tower inspections, crop health analysis, 3D modeling, and many other things. So visit panthercityair.com to see if they can help you out with something. As always, I also want to thank Ron, Jay, K, Brenda, Tim, Josh, Johnny, and Rayma for their support on Patreon. Their generosity uh, on Patreon assists me in getting different resources and preparing these episodes. So my gratitude is always to them. I also want to remind you to be sure to check out the Wild West Extravaganza podcast. I hope you checked out the History Cafe podcast. I'm constantly being thrilled by whatever new episodes both of those put out. And remember the Hymns of the Highway podcast. If you want to check out some interesting interviews and conversations about music, especially Texas music, you should definitely keep them in mind. And speaking of music, of course, I'm going to end the episode by recommending that you remember. Texas History Lessons Spotlight Artist Mondo Salas Go listen to him Wherever you enjoy music Go buy some of his music Give him some extra cash He's hard at work On a new album Going over every detail Until he is ready To bless your ears With his wonderful music So let's end the podcast With his song I Love Take care of yourself Take care of each other Be kind Audio.